The title that you have in your bulletin is Man's Position in God's Mercy. I'm going to modify that a little bit and call it Man's Identity. So if I were to name off certain famous or infamous people, your answer in describing that, say, for example, I said Sean Connery. You would all, well, I won't say you all. Those of you with a greater amount of knowledge and maturity would know that Sean Connery is a Scottish actor who played James Bond, the best James Bond, uh, in my opinion. Though Daniel Craig does hold his own. So if I would say Sean Connery, your answer to me would probably be, who is he? An actor. But is that who he is? No, in reality, he's a person that I have no idea who he is. I know what he does for a vocation, or what he did, I should say. Um, if I would name Sammy or uh, Tammy Duckworth, those of you who know, she's one of our representatives, senator from Illinois. Ronald Reagan, you would say, you know, former president. We don't answer that with the idea of what their true identity is, right? If someone comes to your door and knocks on there and say they're doing a survey, they pretty much announce themselves, hi, I'm so-and-so with whatever company or whatever they're doing, right? They don't tell you who they are. They tell you who they represent or what they do. We do that a lot, don't we? If we're asked, how are you? And meeting someone for the first time, you know, fine. We all say fine, even though we're not. It's what you have to do. But if we say, you know, what do you do? Or, you know, or we don't ask, who are you? We ask, what do you do, right? What do you do for a living? What is that? So our identity is placed a lot on what we do, not who we are, right? So today we're going to look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you want to turn there. One of the other things about identity is that in recent years, and maybe even longer than that, there seems to be a questioning about who we are as a church, as a believer in Christ Jesus. Now, the world, of, the world around us seems to have an identity crisis, don't they? As far as I know, science tells us there are two genders. But we have people that identify as something else, right? Seen on the Internet, a gal that identifies as a cat. Uh, if we're going to have that position. I do know at times when I've been waiting in line for the restroom that my bladder will identify as a female and walk across the hall to the other bathroom because <laughs> it requires it to. So in that moment, my bladder identifies. No. But you understand what I'm getting at. It's the idea of who we are. It's out there on the Internet all the time, people talking about this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am. I would suggest that for the Christian, the believer in Christ Jesus, you only have one answer, and that is a child of God, a follower of Christ Jesus. For the non-believer, their identity is the walking dead. They're alive, but they're not, right? 
In Ephesians here, we will see that in a little bit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time where we can gather together and uh, look at it here, Lord, and what it says. And Lord, and just uh, apply your truths to our life that we would honor and glorify you with our lives. Uh, just again, thank you for this opportunity. I just pray that um, we would do all things to praise your name. In thy name, amen. So, if you will follow along, I'm reading from the ESV, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To start off a little background about Ephesians, uh, most scholars view the epistle of Ephesians as encyclical, fancy word. It's a circular letter. It was one that was meant to be passed around and shared with other local churches in Asia Minor. The main reason for this thought by most scholars is that some early manuscripts do not contain the word in Ephesians in chapter 1, verse Four. No. In verse yeah, verse 1, I'm sorry, where it says, To the saints who are in the Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. However, even if the absence of these words, this letter is appropriately titled Ephesians since Ephesus was the capital of that area. The time Paul spent with them also points to the fact that this letter was being delivered to them first. Um, Paul sends Tychius to deliver this letter. Paul states this so that you may know who I am and what I am doing. Tychius, the blessed who helped minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. That's from chapter 6, near the end of verse 21 to 27. Paul's been readily accepted as the author. He refers himself twice, in Ephesians 1 and in chapter 3, verse 1. Ephesians is one of what have been labeled a prison letter. The, the idea behind that, what it is, is it was written around 60 to 62 AD when Paul was in prison in Rome. Paul's major theme for the epistle of Ephesians is who the church is and how they are to function being in Christ. Ephesians can be divided in basically two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 dealing with the wealth of the believer or the riches we have in Christ. 
chapters 4 through 6, instructing the believers in Christ how to walk in faithful obedience to Christ, the head of the church. A lot of Paul's letters are written similarly, where the first few chapters deal mostly with the doctrine, the truth he's trying to put out, and then he finishes and follows up with that with the believer's duty in following those truths. Our focus will be on chapters 2, 1 through 10 here this morning. The believer's position in Christ as an individual. We know that as believers we have a position in Christ corporately, right? As we gather in church, we have that. That basically focuses in chapter 2, verses 11 through the end. Paul describes who the believer was, and because of the efficacious work of Christ, who they are now and will be in eternity. We'll divide this up in verses 1 through 3, 4 through 7, 4 through 6, and 8 through, or 7 through um, 10. A key note here is that Paul is describing who they were, having already been described of their blessing of being in Christ Jesus in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he talks about the many blessings. There's a prayer in there of praise and thankfulness for all that we have being in Christ as believers. And then he focuses on the fact of who we are as individuals, uh, knowing believers. Unbelievers are dead. This is a spiritual death just as Adam and Eve had after disobeying God's instruction in the garden. Um, they did not physically die immediately, did they? But there was a spiritual death in the fact that there was no longer any communion, any relationship with God in the garden. They were kicked out. From that point of the fall, um, we have inherited that propensity towards selfishness and sin, and that is the point of Paul then making the fact that the unbeliever is... The walking dead. They're alive physically, but dead they are spiritually, separated from God. Physically, we still have temptations. Here in talking about the unbeliever, it isn't just because they commit sin. It's because there is sin in them. There's a sin nature. It is not just the act of sinning. Notice the plural form of these nouns. It is not just a sin, but a continual habitual pattern of disobedience to God. When you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the principality of the air, the Spirit is now working the sons of obedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. This is a continual, habitual pattern that unbelievers will show. Believers can still sin, correctly? Yes. Yeah, exactly. We still make mistakes. We still fall to temptation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and it says here, Paul again talking to believers, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
describing believers again as who they were, what they did. In chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, um, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read this. He says, And you who once were alienated and hot, uh, sorry, let me skip down a line. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of times people want to stop there. See? See? It says, these sinners, they're terrible. Anybody that does this isn't going to go there. They forget to read verse 11. And he says, and such were some of you. He's not leaving anybody out, is he? He isn't saying that's who they are. He's saying that's who you once were. So prior to being in Christ, this was the nature in which we all walked. Now, we may not have done all of the sins that are listed here. But again, I remind you that Jesus talked about the heart, not just the outward sin, but the inward sin, lust, greed, hatred, all of those things. Following the course of this world, where it says that in verse 2, is the direction of how an unbeliever is walking in this sphere of spiritual deadness, this sphere, this world we live in. Not just the physical earth, but the whole idea of this evil world system in talking about that. Paul now states that it is, that the, it's, it is who is that, that the unbelievers are following. It's the prince, the power of the air, Satan. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, says 1 John five nineteen. For now. Right? That won't be forever. The Lord will return, justice will be done. He will reign here. He is the leader of the unbelievers and the one who they most unknowingly follow. Paul then in the rest of verse 2 here describes that Satan is that evil spirit that is now in the work of sons of disobedience. As Jesus described the Pharisees in John 8.44 that their father was Satan was the devil. And their desire was to do Satan's will, to follow him. Paul again speaks who they once were and how they lived. They lived out the passions of their flesh in verse 3. Here Paul describes the degree to which unbelievers, which we once walked, are totally immersed in satisfying the cravings and desires of the flesh. We want what we want when we want it, right? Any of you parents who have had small children have dealt with this nauseum, right? All the time. Forever. Is it ever going to end? Does it end, Matt? No, it don't end. (laughs) Matt's my son, for those of you who may not be aware. (laughs) And that's what happens when you have grandkids. Uh, these passions and desires are pursued, not only physically, but even to the point of occupying the thoughts and the mind constantly, right? We look back at the flood. God decides that he is going to clean the earth, wipe it clean, wash it all off, right? Except for eight people, Noah and his sons and his wife and their wives. And that was it. And it states in there that God looked at the earth and there was continuously sin, Evil all around. Nothing good. 
that still is describing our present day in this realm that we live in. In his letter to the Roman believers, Paul states that we are saved from the wrath of God in chapter 5, verse 9. The Apostle John says something similar in John 3.18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, right? We are dead. John 3.36 says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Telling us that the wrath of God is on unbelievers until he reaches out and changes them, right? And we will get to that here shortly. Our sinful nature condemns us to judgment from God. His wrath is on us and the rest of mankind. In verse 1 through 3, Paul describes the spiritual life of the unbelievers. They are dead in their sins. As I said, the walking dead. The application for us as believers today is to remember who we were before being in Christ. We were dead in our sin. We weren't just floating out in our own world and swam to a life preserver. We were dead bones on the bottom of the sea. God reached down out of that sin and breathed into us eternal life, right? He drew us to Him. Nothing which we have done, which we'll get down to in verses 9 and 8. We were following the ways of the world and the leader of the condemned world system, Satan. As unbelievers, we may not have been the worst individuals, but all unbelievers are following after their own passions. Some of them become more visible when we look within the world, right? The desires of the flesh and a sinful mind were only our focus continually. We were under God's wrath, as are all who do not believe in God as their only hope of salvation from sin. Verse 4. The greatest two words that I think are in the Bible. I mean, they're all great. Don't misunderstand me. But when you read, but God, especially following a condemnation, a statement of who we were before being a believer, right? Dead in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he adds the statement at the end, by grace you have been saved. After describing that we are all sinners and under God's justified wrath, only God can save us from his wrath, right? He had to find the perfect sacrifice and only he could provide that. In this verse, we see that God, that Paul describes two of the characteristics of God, his mercy and his love. So mercy and love, we like those words, don't we? We don't like wrath, punishment, judgment, but they're all characteristics of God. Those words do not define God. God defines those words. It is who he is. So as we look today, this morning, and looking at who we are in Christ In our position, we see God's great love and great mercy. The phrase being rich in mercy speaks of God's wealth of compassion on his children. The next phrase we have, in his great love with which he loved us. 
is displayed by the sacrifice of his son, Christ Jesus, on the cross, suffering God's full wrath because of our sin. Christ paying the price for our sins, suffering God's full wrath in that moment on our behalf, but mostly for the fact of glorifying himself. And we will see that later here also of how that works. Salvation is God making believers alive in Christ. He said, he stated, we were dead, now we're alive. His great love has done the three things. In chapter 2, verse 5, we are ra- he made us alive. Verse 6, it says, he raised us up and seated us with him in 6b. In these verses, 1 and 3, Paul had described the state of believers at Ephesus, their past state, who they were. Here in 4 through 7, he is now stating who they are. Again, answering that question of who are we? From death to life, our salvation from God's perspective is complete. But we don't live in God's perspective, do we? We live here, we live now in the present. He has made us alive. He's raised us up as in resurrection with Christ and seated us in heaven with Christ. Why is God doing things this way? Verse 7 explains it. It's all done to display God's great grace for his glory. God displays his great grace, mercy, and kindness by saving us through the completed work of Christ Jesus on the cross. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you've noticed so far, a lot of what we read, you'll run across the term either in him or in Christ Jesus, right? When we get towards the end here, we will see that made more real to us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Completed. Remember the Old Testament and how the priests would offer sacrifice? They never sat down. They stood the entire time. It's like being up here behind the pulpit. That's why we have this so that I can lean on it and don't fall over. But it showed a sign of they had to do it continually, right? But praise God that Jesus Christ paid that once for all. In verses 4 through 7, Paul further explains that he had, what he had stated in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, which state the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul, in these two words in verse 4, saying, But God shows that only God can provide the power for salvation. Our reconciliation and fellowship with God now and forever. It's all of him. These few verses speak of the great depth of God's love for us in making us alive. God raised us up with Christ and placing us with him in the future heavenly realm. Great to look forward to. We need to constantly remember our salvation is all of God. 
We are his trophies of grace to give God all the glory at all times. In verses 8 and 9, we've heard those lots of times, right? Anybody in here, probably sixth grade on down, has heard it repeatedly through Awana, Sunday school. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. Paul describes the immeasurable riches of his grace. God's grace from verse 7. Paul here, Paul here expands on what he stated in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Giving us a little insert into what he elaborates more on in 8 and 9 here. Salvation is God's grace given to us through faith. The faith to believe is a gift from God. Paul begins chapter 2 telling his readers... We are dead. You are dead. Dead people cannot save themselves, as I mentioned before. Someone has to save them, right? Yes. Exactly. There needs to be that reconciliation with God to be made alive and in Christ. Paul says that in the middle of verse 8, this is not your own doing. We can't claim any participation in this. This means of believing faith is all of God's grace and to the believer through Christ Jesus. Paul is telling his readers that salvation from the wrath of God is the gracious gift of faith to believe and become a child of God. Paul's emphasis in verse 9, the fact that God's gracious gift of salvation through faith is all of God. Salvation is not the result of any man-made work that dead men could accomplish for their own glory or boasting. Titus 3.5, Paul again to Titus makes it very plain. He saved us, speaking of Christ, not because of works of done by righteousness, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, God and God alone is the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith. Now there is some... I won't call it controversy, but somewhere there's a division that people want to make between for by grace you have been saved through faith and that the gift is faith to believe or is the gift salvation. I would present to the fact that it doesn't matter. They're both one and the same. You can't have salvation. You cannot have being saved without having the faith to believe. In verse 10, Paul speaks of the purpose of why God saved us from death to life. He doesn't just say an end at nine, right? There's a outcome. There's a follow-through with these verses and telling us what we are to do. Paul states we are his workmanship, God's trophies of grace, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that. 
Paul in his letter to Titus states that for the reason of our salvation, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Further in Romans and in Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that we were slaves to sin. Our position only changes when we are in Christ of who our new master is. Instead of being a slave to sin, to our own physical desires and temptations that we fall to, we are now slaves to righteousness. Not the good things that we can do. There's no merit in us. These are the ones that were prepared beforehand that God had designed for us to do, as it says in verse 10. Good works do not save us. They are the result of God regenerating believers. The Bible talks about it in the way of fruit, right? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Fruits of righteousness. John the Baptist tells us, those religious leaders, you're supposed to show the fruits of repentance, right? Again, Pre-stating this, as Paul said, it's not just anything that we can do. And I think that's the important part to remember in our salvation, that is God who makes us from being dead to alive in him and through him. Paul is saying the works we do for God's glory are not what we can manufacture in ourselves. God is sovereign in all aspects of our salvation. He has prepared the good works And we are to walk in life, walk in through our life as his children. Paul repeats this similarly throughout the believers in Colossae. In Colossians 1.10 it says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In these verses 8-9, through nine, Paul declares that our salvation is all of God's grace. Jonathan Edwards said this, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Not a raving review of who we are, right? No reason or anywhere where we can boast about, look at me, look at the good works I've done. See how good I am? No boasting. There will be no boasting on our part. Human effort has nothing to do with God saving us. Paul does not end at verse 9, though. He explains the purpose for God transforming the believer. Who we were, dead in Christ. Who we are, alive in Christ. What do we do? We do the good works that he's preordained that we do. We're not just to, I got my ticket to heaven, my faith, my belief, I trust in him. I can do whatever I like, right? It's not how it works. The life of the believer is to walk a life that displays the transforming power of God. As I said, God took us from being dead and made us alive to display his power to change the hearts of mankind. That's what we are to do, right? The Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Share 
our faith, share the faith that we were given, the good news, right? Unfortunately, I think when we look at the world around us, we don't see, well, we see unbelievers as those who are dead, right? Spiritually dead, have nothing to that. But do we look at them as God looked at us before we were saved? Not always. Nobody really thinks fondly of Hitler, right? Nobody thinks fondly of a lot of our leaders. No one really respects, talks highly about those that kill babies, abortionists, right? Paul in 1 Corinthians listed off a bunch of horrendous sins, didn't he? And he states, as some of you were. I think we lose our perspective on who we were when it comes to looking at unbelievers. You know, our attitude, we may not say it out loud, but a lot of times our attitude can be, they got what they deserved, you know, something bad happens to them. Or God, why don't you just wipe them from the face of the earth? Now, we're not alone in that. James and John, two of the disciples, one being the first to be killed for his faith, the one being last to die for his faith, what were they known as? Sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Exactly. Do you know why? Because they one time decided when they were walking to Christ and things were happening, and their comment was to Jesus, Hey, why don't we call lightning down from earth to consume them? Loving and kind thing to say, right? You read the Psalms and you wonder, David, the precatory Psalms, and I struggle with those sometimes. How can he say that? How can he pray that? How can he want that to be done? Well, if you follow those through, usually at the end, he reflects back on the fact of where his state is and how God's great and merciful and powerful. So part of my challenge in this is for us to have the right attitude to unbelievers. I think sometimes we become caught up in the elitist idea that we are more better. I know, bad English. I'll pay for that later. In this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul explains salvation being part of Christ's body, the church. Paul mentions this in, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, where it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He speaks of our past as an unbeliever, the present and the future as a believer in Christ Jesus to complete the work he has ordained that we do. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 show us that Though mankind is spiritually dead and following after the ways of this world, evil world system, that they are fully deserving the wrath of God, correct? God in his immeasurable, marvelous grace has provided salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you are here and you're not sure that you are a child of God, I will tell you with all facts that if you were not a child of God, you were a child of Satan. You may not think that. No one thinks that, you know, I'm the worst there is. 
And it may not be that you are the worst. But the Bible does teach us that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God, right? Believers are the workmanship of God through whom he does his works. This passage is just part of an overall letter Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus to be passed around to that. Paul in the first three chapters describes the wealth that the believers have in Christ Jesus, which we looked at today, right? Giving us the past, the present, and our future. The terms in Christ and in him are used 20 times in these three chapters. What do you think Paul's emphasis was as a believer to the church at Ephesus? That they are, who are they? They are the body of Christ. They are in Christ. They are in him. The emphasis of these phrases are significant in that Paul wants the reader to know that the head of the church is Christ. It's not an individual. It's not a team of people. It is not anyone in leadership. God has just put us in a position that we are all to worship him and follow him. He is the head. In the concluding chapters, in 4 through 6, Paul describes and instructs how the believer is to walk in Christ. As I mentioned in the beginning, it's divided up basically in the wealth, the riches we have, and how we are to walk in knowing that the riches and wealth that we have in being in Christ. This passage, which has been the focus of this morning, is Paul describing the riches of being in Christ Jesus as an individual within the body of Christ to do all for God's glory. That is our mission. God saved us. He redeemed us. We are reconciled to God all through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As a believer, again, as I mentioned before, our attitude towards unbelievers should be that of love and mercy as God had on us. Now, do we need to stand up and make statements that what things are happening are wrong? Absolutely. If you truly love somebody and their house is on fire, you're not going to stand outside and go, um, oh, wait, let me get my phone out. I've got to tweet this. Or if they're not a very pleasant neighbor, yeah, I hope he loses everything. <laughs> right? No. The compassion. Again, Paul then reminding us in this that we need to remember who we were. Now, we don't dwell there. We don't live there. God has changed us. And our focus should be to evangelize the world, to share the good news, to be loving as God loved us, right? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, again, we just thank you for... Your word, we thank you that you gave Paul the words to say, Lord, that we can read even now in this day and time, as it was meant for those at uh, Ephesus and the churches around there, the encouragement, Lord, of knowing that your grace, your mercy was given to us, not by anything we do, Lord, but by your great mercy and your great grace. But most of all, Lord, help us to remember from which we were we came. We were sinners. 
We were enemies of God. And you chose us. Lord, we pray that we then would, through that gratefulness, through gratefulness of your great mercy and your grace and love to us as your children, would not only live lives that the world could see that, hey, they're different, Lord, but that we would take those opportunities to share that, to have those conversations. Lord, help us to look for those conversations. And Lord, we pray that all we would do would honor and glorify you in all things. In thy name, amen.